0: on against the grain. What makes solidarity among political activists possible? What makes one group of people show up and stand up for another group's interests? I'm CS. Manijay Moradian highlights what she calls affects of solidarity with a focus on Iranian student leftists in the U.S. coming right up. this is Against the Grain. On Pacifica Radio, my name is C.S. Song. When people who are part of a homogenous group show up for one another, defend and support each other, it can be inspiring, if predictable. When a group reaches out to support and work alongside a very different group, different, for example, in race, class, or experience of oppression, that can be striking that may be surprising that might provoke a question in one's mind of why why do some people some activists reach across difference to support other activists with very different demands backgrounds experiences and social locations in her new book menijay moradian examines why many iranians who came to the u.s on student visas in the 1960s and 70s allied themselves with, indeed became active in, black liberation, Palestine liberation, and other radical movements and causes. Manijay Moradian is assistant professor of women's, gender, and sexuality studies at Barnard College. Her new book is This Flame Within, Iranian Revolutionaries in the United States. When Manijay and I connected recently, I asked what her book purports to do. Well,
1: one of the things I'm trying to do with this book is to introduce a, a different history of Iranians in the United States. So we commonly think about the 1979 revolution in Iran as the kind of instigating incident that triggers a mass migration of Iranians um, to the United States who settle here permanently. However, beginning in the aftermath of the 1953 CIA backed coup in Iran, there was a different kind of migration that happened, a temporary migration of Iranian students who were sent abroad, mostly to the United States, but also to Canada and different European countries to receive a Western education. And I wanted to chart that history um, here in the United States. Um, And I also wanted to uncover some of the hidden aspects of that history including what the book really focuses on, which is the anti-Shah activist movement um, that many of those students participated in. I wanted to look at the contributions that Iranian foreign students had made to what we, um, those of us who are progressives, leftist activists, we commonly think of as a kind of high point of third world internationalism and social movements in the United States, the movements of the 60s and 70s, I wanted to look at the role Iranian foreign students had played in those movements um, and kind of write them into the story of uh, those high points of solidarity and internationalism in the U.S.
0: And you refer to them as Iranian foreign students because these are people who are coming to the US for an education, but who do not plan to stay here, who intend to go back?
1: Yes, they came on student visas. And the reason that they came uh, was because in the aftermath of the coup in Iran, the US backed the Shah and really turned Iran into a kind of laboratory for its anti-communist Cold War strategy, um, a strategy that they would repeat in many other countries. So it began with a coup, to overthrow a democratic popular government led by Mohammed Mossadegh, which had nationalized Iran's major resource, oil. Um, So in the aftermath of the coup, Iran then becomes um, what we could almost think of in a a term that we use more contemporarily, but it was almost like a neo-colony. The U.S. government, uh, through economic aid, military aid, the training of the police, the military, really tries to remake Iran um, as a kind of model of what Westernization, what capitalist development can do. Iran becomes, uh, it's like an example to the rest of the third world that, you know, um, we can bring progress, we can bring modernization, um, and this is the alternative to communism. So this is very much about uh, the context of the Cold War and US Cold War strategy. But in order to make that project succeed, Iranians had to uh, develop their own kind of native class of technocrats, managers, professionals, they needed a class of Iranians with a Western education, right? Who would have the the technical know-how, but also who would kind of um, assimilate a pro-capitalist and pro-US worldview, right? And then come back to Iran and kind of run the modernization project. So that's the reason that tens of thousands of young people were sent abroad to study. Um, So I call those students imperial model minorities, so I'm kind of riffing on the notion of the model minority citizen, um, which of course is a category that is kind of invented in the 1960s um, in in a moment when black liberation and civil rights movements have succeeded in achieving many legal victories. And yet, systematic racism and segregation remains in the United States. And so um, you get the invention by the media and pundits of this figure of the model minority, uh, which points to the economic success of some Asian Americans um, as, a, as a sort of way of saying, look, you know, if you work hard, you can succeed. And if if you haven't managed to succeed like, like the model minority has, then it's your own fault. right?" So it's a way of deflecting away from the systematic uh, racism and inequality that remains in the U.S. Well, the imperial model minority functions in a similar way on a transnational scale, right? The ge- geographic scales are different. So the imperial model minority is the foreign student, not just from Iran, but from many third world countries, um, who whose um, entry into the U.S. to receive an education is supposed to kind of mask the harsher realities of what... U.S. intervention and modernization looked like in third world countries. So in other words, imperial model minorities were supposed to symbolize and embody American benevolence and largesse the way that America was uh, lifting living standards around the world and to mask the fact that they were doing that almost without exception by backing brutal dictatorships. Um, so that modernization and authoritarianism went hand in hand. Modernization and regimes that used torture, that systematically persecuted dissidents, including students, you know, that was the model um, that the U.S. um, used around around the world, not just in Iran. Again, there are many, many examples, um, including Chile, maybe most famously to your listeners, perhaps. Um, But so the imperial model minority was a celebrated figure um, a sign of kind of Pax Americana and spreading freedom and democracy. Um, and um, what was interesting to me was the way that the that a minority of, of these uh, students, when they came here to receive that education, to go back home and to kind of run the colony, they found themselves really unable to and unwilling to uh, fulfill that role.
0: Right. And many of these students joined the Iranian Students Association. This was a U.S. affiliate, the U.S. affiliate of what's called the Confederation or what was called the Confederation of Iranian Students. So my sense is that these were leftists, again, Iranian foreign students, although you can tell me whether Iranian American students also joined the Iranian Students Association. Who tended to join the ISA and and what sorts of Iranian students became members.
1: So what's interesting is at the time when these students started to come in the late 1950s and then increasing in numbers throughout the 1960s and 1970s, there really was not a um, Iranian American immigrant population in the United States. So we really didn't have Iranian Americans back then. The only Iranians who were around were these students, were these temporary, I call them a temporary diaspora, to acknowledge the ways that they were scattered by the forces of US Cold War policy um, in Iran and by the Shah's dictatorship in Iran. Uh, But they they were temporary. They were always planning to go home. Um, And most of them, uh, when they came in the early 60s, mid 60s, they were not already leftists, most of them. Um, They were in various ways alienated by the Shah's dictatorship, uh, but they went through a process of radicalization much like their counterparts in the United States. So in many of the same ways that we see student movements in the US developing from maybe a trajectory of, you know, Reform towards revolution, to put it in the in the most uh, simplistic terms, um, the Iranian student movement went through a similar process. Uh, for example, initially ISA members would ask for the the Shah to enforce the constitution, things like that they They had a kind of more legalistic um, approach, but uh, after being rebuffed over and over again, uh, they drew more revolutionary conclusions and turned against the Shah's government and openly called for its overthrow, but that was a process that took um, at least a decade um, so that it was really by the late 60s and early 70s that the Iranian Students Association took on a decidedly left-wing character. Um, And again, I think this mirrors the trajectory of many of their American contemporaries um, in the civil rights movement through the radicalization of SNCC, for example, and the Black Panthers, or if we look at the anti-war movement, um, and the process of SDS radicalizing, right. So there's a kind of similar um, trajectory that goes on where where young people make very kind of um, um, partial demands, you know, they ask for very simple things like respect the constitution or democratic rights. And when they're met with state violence, um you know, they learn those hard lessons and begin to think that the system as a whole um, has has to go and has to change. Um, so Iranian students were, Um, involved in their own process of of radicalization, both in relation to events in Iranian society and in relation to the student milieu that they were part of in the United States. But the one last thing I wanna say in response to this question is that it's important to note that the Iranian Students Association was initially formed as a kind of um, Iranian government entity. It was started by a CIA, backed organization, the American Friends of the Middle East. And it was initially set up so that the Iranian government could keep tabs on, could surveil and and sort of control the Iranian student population um, abroad to make sure that they didn't become radicalized, that they didn't engage in any anti-Shah activity or any activity that would embarrass the Iranian government. Um, And so uh, I tell the story in the book, but there's a very dramatic, conference of the ISA in which opposition students, students who were supporters of Mohammad Mossadegh and the the democratic government that had been deposed by the coup, they kind of seize seize power, they seize leadership within the ISA, um, and that happens in 1961. And it's really from that point on that the ISA becomes a vehicle for um, opposition to US support for the Shah, And then, of course, as it radicalizes, as I said, it becomes um, really a leftist force that is against U.S. imperialism um, globally.
0: That's Manijay Moradian. She is assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Barnard College. Her new book is This Flame Within, Iranian Revolutionaries in the United States. It's published by Duke University Press. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. One chapter of your book, the chapter we'll focus on today, delves into the role of Iranian student activists in the movements that marked the heyday of third-world leftist organizing in the U.S. So we are talking about movements, well, you you focus in this chapter on movements for black liberation, Arab self-determination, and uh, movements against the war in Vietnam. And you begin the chapter, Maniger, with something that happened in late 1967 at what was then called San Francisco State College. It's now San Francisco State University. An undergrad named Cosro Kalantari, please correct my pronunciation, kicked a hole in the door of the main administration building on campus. Why did he do that, and why do you begin this part of your book with this episode?
1: Well, I'm so glad you brought this up because I think your listeners are probably very familiar with the 1968-1969 student strike, the mass strike at San Francisco State College. And I think if there's, if there's any event that really marks the high point of student radicalism, And if there's any event that has really had tremendous lasting effects in terms of uh, really transforming curriculums in higher education, it is that strike. Um, And of course, there were other student strikes as well with similar demands. Um, But when I I set out to do this research, one of the major areas that I focused on was the San Francisco Bay Area, because that is where the ISA had one of its largest and most longstanding Chapters and so I was interviewing people about their student days there and I was looking through various archives um, And I I had heard from one of my interviewees that Iranian students had participated in this kind of historic Strike at SF State, so I went digging through the archives and I did find um, Local news footage of a rally that happened in December of 1967 So it's a year before the strike um, but it was a major event in the escalation of the kind of um, antagonism between students and the administration. So several members of the Black Student Union had been suspended um, after protesting racism at the campus publication and um, you know protesting against a kind of backlash um, against affirmative action that had happened. So these students were suspended without any due process. So there was a rally against the suspensions that happened Um, and the administration was very nervous. So they had locked the doors of the administration building preemptively before the the rally even got there. Um, So when the students arrived with their signs denouncing racism, calling for uh, due process on campus and to lift the suspensions, they started banging on the glass door. And Hosro Kalantari, you can see him in this footage, um, he was an active ISA member um, and a student at SF State at the time. He wasn't the only ISA member uh, to participate in the strike, but he was the one I kept finding evidence of in the archives, so I focus on, on him. And so um, he and the other students are banging on the glass door and um, demanding to, to, to get into the building, to have their demands heard, and finally, Khosrow just just kicks, kicks in the door. He's, he's had enough of this impasse. Um, and he kicks in the door and removes the glass and, and climbs in through the sort of jagged opening and hundreds of students file in behind him and they launch a building occupation. Um, and the, the president of the college at the time, President Summerskill. He's so upset about this. He says the students are verging on civil insurrection. That's what he tells a press conference. And he shuts the entire campus down. So this becomes, uh, as I said, a um, a turning point in the struggle um, where it's it's pretty clear that there's not going to be a happy negotiation around a table um, and that confrontation and militancy are going to be um, the strategies that students feel are necessary um, to really achieve Change and to make their college into the kind of place that they that they want it to be to speak to their histories and experiences.
0: So it's significant to you, uh, Manijeh, that it was an Iranian foreign student who got the door open, such that uh, he and uh, many many other activists could get in and begin occupying the building.
1: I wanted to understand why Khosrow, who again was here on a student visa, was supposed to go back to Iran. Why he would put himself at risk um, to participate in an occupation like this, t- to, to kick in the door, to occupy, but also the following year to participate in the strike because Khosrow became one of the recognized leaders of the strike. Um, so my question was really, why did Iranian students put their bodies on the line? Um, Khosrow and also Hamid Kosari and Parvi Shokat, they were all ISA members who participated in the strike, and who were arrested during the course of the strike. So if you were arrested as a foreign student, you could be deported back to Iran. And because they were anti-Shah activists, if they were deported back to Iran, they would be immediately arrested and face serious prison time, possibly torture, and possibly even worse. So the risks were considerable. And so I really wanted to understand why Khosrow and and other ISA members got involved in these struggles when they did not have the same experience of marginalization, racism and dispossession in the United States as um, the Black Student Union or any of the other organizations that made up the Third World Liberation Front, which was of course uh, the leadership body constituted during the course of the strike. They did not share those histories or experiences, and they did not have the same demands. They were not interested in seeing Iranians reflected in the curriculum, or the admission of more Iranian students, or the hiring of more Iranian faculty. Those were not their their demands at all. And they were not looking for equal rights or inclusion or representation within the US, right? They all assumed they were going to be returning home. So my question was, was, why? Um, did they participate? Why did they take these risks? And that really led me to an investigation of affect and emotion. You know, what were the feelings? What was the the sort of orientation or stance um, that Iranian students took in the United States? And again, the majority of them did get their degrees and go back home. But I focus on the several thousand who, as I said earlier, kind of were not able to go along with the program um, and who spent their time in the U.S. using every opportunity they could on campus and off campus to expose the Shah as a dictator, um, to expose the torture of dissidents, and to expose the brutality of what the U.S. was really doing in Iran. So I I wanted to focus on those students um, because I wanted to show that there was another way of being Iranian in the U.S. that wasn't only about sort of reproducing the status quo, which is what has sort of dominated since 1979, where we have the migration of quite successful in terms of high levels of education, high levels of um, income. We have quite successful Iranian American population that by and large has, has not tried to ally with uh, people of color, with the struggles of working class um, black and brown folks. But at this time, we did see that several thousand Iranian students threw their lot in with the folks who were struggling in the U.S. for equal rights against tremendous amounts of state violence um, and racial oppression.
0: That's the voice of Manijeh Moradian, spelled M-A-N-I-J-E-H, M-O-R-A-D-I-A-N. She teaches women's gender and sexuality studies at Barnard College. She's former co-director of the Association of Iranian-American Writers and a founding member of Raha Iranian Feminist Collective. We are talking about her new book, This Flame Within, Iranian Revolutionaries in the United States, and ISA keeps coming up. That's the Iranian Students' Association in the U.S. The program is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Right. So this issue of how people mobilize across, as you write, multiple sites of difference, how much of this has to do with the background of these Iranian students, what they experienced in Iran before they came to the U.S. to pursue their studies?
1: For this book, I interviewed over 30 former members of the ISA, and I asked each one of them, you know, how did you become political? You know, how did you get into activism? And I was, I was very surprised initially to, to find myself listening to childhood stories of what it was like to grow up under a U.S.-backed dictatorship. And they had memories of family members and friends who had been tortured by the U.S.-trained secret police force, SAVAC. They had memories of tanks in the streets, of soldiers, of the smell of tear gas. Um, they had memories of relatives who had been part of opposition movements, including the Tudé Party or Communist Party, um, relatives who had been part of the oil nationalization movement during Mossadegh's tenure. So they they had lived experiences of repression and also these deeper, longer histories of resistance. And all of that was sort of what I think of as embodied knowledge, you know, not not things that they learned through reading, through textbooks or history books, but things they learned in the course of everyday life, through their relationships, through their, through their senses, right? Um, and these lived experiences traveled with them to the U.S. when they came here. And so when, when Iranian students saw other groups of young people um, reacting against state violence and oppression, reacting against unjust power, with militancy, with organization, with protest, with outrage, they were drawn to that because that's how they felt about the dictatorship in Iran. And it was much harder to organize in Iran because you could be arrested uh, for even having a meeting or even carrying a piece of subversive literature, let alone going to um, a protest or participating in a strike. Um, People did those things, but they were extremely dangerous um, and met with severe repression in the U.S. there was a little bit more space to organize, to have meetings, to have marches, to have rallies. And so Iranian students made good use of that um, to publicize the the kind of harsh realities of U.S. support for the Shah and what that meant for Iranian people, but they were also drawn to um, the resistance of others. So I was interested in kind of theorizing a basis for solidarity across differences that was not about having the same experiences of oppression or sharing the same histories of marginalization and dispossession, um, which I think is, is you know, one of the ways that we often think about what brings us together in movements um, is we kind of have this model that we have maybe more homogenous groups that come together in coalitions, right? Um, Homogenous groups, for example, within um, particular racial or ethnic categories that can then come together in coalitions. And I think that the thorough liberation front, you know, really innovated this model of different groups of people bringing together different but shared histories, right, of dispossession, racism, marginalization, exploitation and oppression um, into the thermal liberation front so they could organize together around a common set of demands. Well, Iranian students brought their lived experience of US imperialism in Iran. And the reason that I wanted to focus on that was because I think too often the movements for black studies and ethnic studies the student strikes that really challenged entrenched and systemic racism in higher education, we remember them too often in a more sanitized way, as if they were only seeking um, you know, greater representation and greater inclusion, when in fact, they were imbued with an anti-capitalist and anti-colonial political project as well. They were seeking the transformation of higher education into a space in which young people could learn about histories and ideas that they could use to transform society as a whole. But sometimes we look back and we say, okay, well, you know, those strikes got us, you know, ethnic studies and black studies, and those are important, but they can um, they can become kind of incorporated into a kind of neoliberal project of just representing different minority groups within within the status quo without really challenging the structural forms of oppression that remain. So I wanted to really remind us that that history wasn't just about inclusion, greater inclusion um, within society as it existed. But it really was tied to um, a larger anti-colonial project and the Iranian student participation in the San Francisco State Strike is a reminder of that. Um, It was those revolutionary affects, as I call them, that were brought from the Iranian context, the lived experience of repression and resistance under the Shah, those revolutionary affects were what informed um, Iranian participation in the strike because they could feel the same way about unjust power. In the face of state repression and state violence, they also wanted to fight back. They wanted to take a stand and to resist. Um, And so that's really where I, I ended up developing this concept of affects of solidarity.
0: And by affect, do you mean uh, emotion? You're also talking about embodied experiences. Is, is this are we talking about something visceral that, as you said, these Iranian students um, felt as a result of what they experienced back in their home country of Iran? Yes.
1: Yeah, so the reason I I turn to thinking about affect is because affect is is just what you said, C.S. It's a visceral embodied, you know, set of intensities. You know, affect is the body coming into contact with the world. Um, Affect is inchoate, it's indeterminate, um, it's not already directed by a feeling, let alone an ideology. Affect is loaded with potential. Um, And it's, it's only later, depending on what context one finds oneself in, that one can sort of read or make sense of those embodied intensities, those energies, the ways that we kind of are, are drawn towards or away from certain objects, certain ideas, certain people. We we need um, context and we need ideas to make sense of um, our affective states or moods. And social movements, political movements, political organizations offer language, vocabulary, ways of understanding why we feel certain ways, why we are um, repulsed by certain things, why we can't sort of go along with, in this case, the status quo, um, why we feel the desire to resist, right? So in within the context of social movements, activist movements, uh, we can learn about um, a language, a history, a vocabulary, an analysis that can make sense of how we feel and help us figure out what to do uh, with, with those feelings and emotions. And that's really what the era of third world internationalism, the era of decolonization and revolutionary student movements in the US really was for people, not just for Iranians. It was a way of making sense of a lifetime of, of encountering injustice. And so when Iranian students saw other groups of people, black students, Asian students, Chicana students, indigenous students who were also trying to make sense of their lifetime of encountering inequality, oppression, racism, dispossession in the United States, there was a kind of synergy that happened. There was a kind of affective resonance, um, an overlapping of affective desires for militancy, for revolution. And I I think about that as a kind of affects of solidarity, right? Where we become we become attached to the liberation of others because we feel the same way about the liberation of someone else as we do about our own liberation. And for me, that became a, a really powerful lens through which to understand how it was that so many different groups of people could identify with and participate in each other's struggles. You know, we think about third world internationalism as this sort of wonderful time where people where people really did get it, you know, that they were connected, that our struggles were interlocking and interconnected in different ways. But I think we rarely understand how that actually played out in practice, you know, how it was that people would get up and decide to go to rallies and protests that had, at least at a superficial level, nothing to do with their own people's struggles and their own people's demands.
0: Manijay Moradian is my guest. She's assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Barnard College. We are talking about her new book, This Flame Within, Iranian Revolutionaries in the United States. And we are focusing on a chapter of the book about the Iranian Students Association, the ISA, and their solidarity with anti-racist and anti-war movements, including their involvement in Bay Area student strikes of the late 1960s and early 1970s. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Yeah, and you give other examples of effects of solidarity, like, you know, on a concrete level, what were people thinking as they viewed other people's struggles or predicaments. Tell us about what an Iranian graduate student and ISA member at Howard University, because some of uh, this portion of your book is focused on activism in Washington, D.C. This was a student named Zore Kayam. And what she told you about her reaction to the 1973 coup in Chile that brought down Salvador Allende.
1: This is a really important example that you're bringing up because I think it does illustrate just what I mean by affects of solidarity. So when the, the US engineered a coup in Chile for Iranian students, um, and, and this is what Zora Chayam said, she said, this was history repeating itself. We had already been through this and now it was happening again in Chile. And so for us, it was heartbreaking. We understood their pain. We understood what it felt like. And so we were with them. You know, and so it was this experience, right, of US-backed coup d'etats, US-backed dictatorships, you know, the anti-communist Cold War policy that was unleashed across the third world that really led to the destruction of democratic and socialist movements um, across Latin America, Africa, and Asia. This was the experience that Iranian students had very early because the CIA-backed coup in 1953 in Iran was one of the very first of its kind and kind of um, helped to inaugurate this new modality, this new form of kind of covert imperialism. You know, rather than directly colonizing Iran, um, this was a new form of um, indirect colonization that the U.S. sort of tests out Iran's one of the one of the first places that they test this out in, but then they repeat it over and over again throughout the Cold War. So for ISA members like Zora Chayam, this was, um, you know, she she felt um, like it was happening again, you know, to her and to her people. She understood what it felt like, and so th- this is the kind of solidarity that you know uh, sustains. Movements, you know, I I think that third world internationalism the kind of solidarity that we we saw back then really can't be explained Only through shared ideological frameworks, of course people did share Marxist Leninism forms of Maoism. They were reading many of the same books but you can read books and that doesn't turn you into you know someone who's gonna get up and go to everyone else's protests right um you have to actually um feel it and this is where the title of the book comes in it's from a quote uh from one former isa member Jalil mustashari uh, who was active in the mid-1960s in east lansing michigan and when i asked him about his involvement in so many other causes and movements he said to me you know, you you can't just say things with your tongue. It you know it doesn't move anyone. You have to feel it. You have to have this flame within you that can warm others. You know, you have to believe it really in your heart. Um, and so I thought, you know, I took the title from Jalil's quote: "This flame within." Uh, because I think that it really captures the way that affective intensities, you know, these embodied histories of repression and resistance um, can orient us towards others who share, who we, we sense a kind of um, something in common, who share an experience, right, of, of um, unjust state power, of dispossession, of having their, to quote Robin Kelly, freedom dreams, you know, dashed by U.S. imperialism. So this flame within becomes a metaphor for these affects of solidarity that drew Iranians together with many other groups of people who had very different histories, very different kinds of oppression, very different kinds of um, losses and injustices, drew them together to support one another's Um, struggles and revolutionary movements. And I think that was a really important piece of the history of Iranians in the United States that we really hadn't heard before.
0: Difficult to talk about radical activism in the Bay Area in the 60s and 70s without bringing up the Black Panthers. How did the Iranian Student Association activists in the area view the Black Panther Party?
1: Well, the Black Panther Party was was probably the the black liberation organization that the ISA most identified with. And I think this is really because of the Black Panthers militancy, their revolutionary stance and orientation um, that that these resonated with ISA members. And the main way that they connected was around the issue of political prisoners. So one of the ISA's major activities, an ongoing site of their activism in the US, was campaigning to free political prisoners back in Iran. Um, So they would go on hunger strikes, they would have protests, they would publicize the faces and the names of dissidents back in Iran who were being held, being put on show trials, given lengthy sentences, sometimes even being given the death penalty, ISA members were trying to embarrass the United States by exposing their support for these kind of horrific travesties of justice, hoping that the exposure, the publicity, the pressure would work to actually mitigate, you know, those sentences to save people's lives and to release people from prison back in Iran. So the Black Panthers, of course, were immediately and quite ruthlessly targeted by the U.S. state covertly and overtly. Um, And they were involved in campaigning to free their own political prisoners, members of the Black Panther Party, including, of course, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, but also others. And so the ISA, again, in the Bay Area, where they were part of, you know, a kind of milieu, right, where there were many student activist groups and causes um, overlapping and interacting with one another all the time, um, the ISA would go to Black Panther rallies and protests to free Black Panther political prisoners. They wrote an article for the Black Panther newspaper, um, making connections between their struggles and offering their solidarity and support. Um, Sometimes the ISA and the Black Panthers were targeted by the same um, repressive state forces. For example, the San Francisco Tax Squad, um, which was kind of like a SWAT team, right, that was um, formed um, and sent out to uh, suppress Black Panther protests, um, also was deployed against ISA members. For example, when they occupied in 1971, when ISA members occupied the Iranian consulate in San Francisco. And so it was in moments like that where um, you would see acts of solidarity. For example, um, the Black Student Union um, in the Bay Area writing a telegram you know, that condemned the repression against Iranian students and demanded all charges against them be dropped and all imperial acts in Iran be stopped. And so you can see the impact, not just of the Black Panthers on the ISA, but also of the ISA on groups like the Panthers and the Black Student Union, because they started to talk about U.S. imperialism in Iran. They started to talk about U.S. imperialism in the Middle East. You know, that became a site of solidarity uh, for them as well. And that has a lot to do with the role that Iranian uh, student leftists played in educating Americans about the CIA coup, which no one had heard about back then. Um, it was not common knowledge, you know. And really exposing what U.S. support for the Shah, you know, meant in Iran. And so I I looked at these connections um, between the ISA and the Black Panther Party again because I wanted to show that uh, when we think about that heyday of of internationalism of Afro Asian connections, we need to think about also West Asia and Iranians as part of of the kind of Afro-Asian connections that happened um, at the time. And it's also a way of challenging some of the anti-Black racism that unfortunately has become very dominant among Iranian Americans in the post-79 period. So I wanted to show that that was not a sort of natural or inevitable outcome, and that there were Iranians in the United States who very much identified with Black liberation
0: Barnard College Professor Manijay Moradian joins me. Her new book is This Flame Within: Iranian Revolutionaries in the United States. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Yeah, and you referred to the the anti-black racism of many people in the Iranian diaspora in the US. You write of a Persian imperial identity earlier that you talked about the imperial model minority um, status of many of these. Iranian foreign students coming to study in the U.S. Uh, And you refer to the Persian imperial identity that dominated the post-1979 Iranian diaspora in the U.S. as relying on racial and class hierarchies to dissociate Iranians from poor and working class people of color, especially blacks, Arabs, and other Muslim immigrants. Let's talk about Palestine and the Palestinian cause. How prominent a part of the Iranian Students' Association's movement and activities was acting in solidarity with Palestinians and pushing back against the Israeli occupation of Palestine?
1: So the issue of Palestinian liberation struck closest to home for the ISA. The ISA had a regional vision of uh, what liberation would mean. They understood that the U.S.-backed Shah was also, you know, working uh, together with the Israeli state against Arab leftist and nationalist movements in the region. So the ISA members understood themselves as sharing kind of common enemies with Palestinians. They saw this kind of triangle of U.S.-backed dictatorships in the Middle East, The US-backed Zionist regime um, colonizing in Palestine, and they they made those connections between Iran, Arab dictatorships, and Israel. Um, And so they unequivocally aligned themselves with Palestinians um, in the region and also in the US. Um, And after the 1967 war, the Arab-Israeli War, Uh, Many Arab students and others began mobilizing and organizing in the United States, and Iranian students had ample opportunity to support those efforts. The ISA would um, organize joint meetings with the Arab Student Associations. They would have teach-ins and film screenings. They would have marches and rallies. I interviewed some ISA members who said that if there were no Palestinians on their particular campus, you know, they would just they would have the march or the rally for Palestine. You know, they wouldn't even talk about the Shah or what was happening in Iran. In fact, I interviewed one um, Palestinian activist who remembered the ISA from those days, and she said, oh yeah, they were more Palestinian than the Palestinians. You know, they were so consistently involved. They were so consistently dedicated to the struggle for Palestinian liberation that they were really part of that broader movement. Um, And again, I thought this was a really important history to bring up because in the post-79 diaspora, Palestine has become a very complicated issue. And too often, all too often, it is not a kind of obvious site of solidarity for Iranians because of the way that the Islamic Republic of Iran has sort of manipulated that issue and made support for Palestine into kind of one of their, uh, the planks of like their state propaganda and their regional policy. So many Iranians have become alienated from the issue of Palestine. And I think this is a great tragedy and something that I hope can shift over time.
0: Mani we've we've literally just scratched the surface of your new book, This Flame Within, Iranian Revolutionaries in the United States. And I, this is going to be hard for you to do, right? Because there's so much. It's an ideas-rich, content-rich book. But what else does this book contain?
1: One of the key interventions I'm trying to make in this book is to really look at the internationalist left of the era of third world solidarity of the 1960s and 70s, and look at how that experience of mass participation in student organizations, in social movements that were oriented around a project of revolution, how that became the context in which new forms of revolutionary feminism emerged. Um, and and to really write the history of Iranians into that larger story of the development of third world feminism, uh, women of color feminism as we call it in the United States, and post-colonial feminism, and to look at the gender and sexual politics of the third worldist left um, of the era. And so I, I do that with the ISA. I have a chapter that looks at the internal political culture of the organization. Um, gender roles and hierarchies, the ways that women and men try to manage um, differences around gender and sexuality, um, the ways that they try to um, develop unity within their movement to encourage women leadership, but also in ways that um, reproduced uh, certain hierarchies about what a true revolutionary um would mean and how to comport oneself as a true revolutionary. And so I look at some of these hierarchies um, around masculinist ideas of revolution and how women challenged those from uh, from within the ISA. And I do this as a kind of case study because, of course, these tensions around gender and sexual equality and, and where those were going to fit within the project of anti-imperialism and anti-capitalist revolution, those tensions were playing out across the left. They were playing out within the Black Panther Party. They were playing out within Students for a Democratic Society or SDS. They were playing out um, in country after country as people uh, achieved decolonization and then were left with very difficult questions about how to reshape a, a, a new society. And very often, unfortunately, women were not given equal citizenship Um, in those contexts. And of course, that was the case in Iran as well. After the 79 revolution, women became legally second-class citizens um, and have been struggling against that ever since. And of course, we're in the midst now of um, several months of a new feminist uprising in Iran. So I wanted to look back at how gender and sexuality had or had not figured into the vision of revolution, of freedom uh, that people were fighting for in the 60s and 70s. So I use the Iranian Students Association as a case study to show how it's the participation of women in these revolutionary movements It's the desire of women for a revolutionary alternative to the status quo that actually provides the conditions in which revolutionary feminisms can emerge, right? Because women experience marginalization and hierarchy within their organizations, within their movements, and within the very concepts of revolution that they're fighting for. And the reaction um, to that is to try to actually deepen and expand what revolutionary politics uh, mean and what Iranian women did and many other women um, involved in thermal liberation movements did was try to fight to make gender and sexual freedom part and parcel of national liberation struggles um, and you know those were heavily contested issues and more often than not um, Women did not succeed at the time. Uh, but I wanted to look at that because I think there's been so much uh, hyper stigmatization of Iranian society and of Muslim majority societies in general as particularly oppressive towards women. And I wanted to actually show that the experience of the Iranian Students Association was very similar to the experiences of other leftist Maoist third world Marxist organizations at the time, um, where they had some some, you know efforts towards gender equality, but they also had um, huge problems in their theory and practice. And they embraced what I think of as a hierarchical model of anti-imperialism that basically asserted, you know, first we have to have the anti-imperialist revolution or the anti-capitalist revolution. And only then can we think about these uh, so-called secondary issues of gender and sexual equality. So women pushed back against that within the Iranian Students Association, within Iranian society, but also, again, within all of the thorough liberation movements that the ISA was in contact with and in solidarity with um, in the US um, as well. So I wanted to unpack that larger story of how the Iranian leftist Experience is part of this genealogy of revolutionary feminisms that develop in the aftermath of anti colonial revolutions.
0: That's Manije Maradi, and you can find the spelling of her name on AgainstTheGrain.org, where you'll also find a link to her new book, This Flame Within Iranian Revolutionaries in the United States. It's published by Duke University Press. Manijé teaches in the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Barnard College. Manijé, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for your work over the years, and thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, C.S. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: And this is C.S. suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio resources and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.